Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. That's our scripture reading this morning. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. And our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 13. That's the whole chapter. 2 Samuel 9, 1 to 13. But first, our scripture reading. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is the Lord who speaks to you. Please give your full attention to the reading of his word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. But he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant, infallible, 
and living word, which he set down in scripture for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you speak to us, that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you've given us your spirit, who is both the author and the interpreter of your word. Lord, we confess that our minds aren't as they ought to be. We confess that they, too, like all the rest of us, have been affected by sin. And so, dear Lord, we are plagued with an inability oftentimes to understand. We're plagued also, dear Lord, when we approach your word with a haughtiness. Oftentimes sitting above your word in judgment of it. We pray, O Lord, that by your spirit you would gently humble us. And help us to sit at your feet. To sit as your students. To sit as those who desire to learn and to better understand. And so if we ask for your spirit to give us understanding, to illumine our minds, to guide us. We pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word, you would teach us more about you. You would help us better to understand your ways. That you'd help us to understand your economy of salvation. And that you would show to us all of your mighty works, that which you have done to save a people for yourself. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, if your memory is better than mine, which is not saying a whole lot, but saying something, you might recognize that the background for today's passage is found back in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 20 and a little bit in 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel. Those are passages that we covered in the sermon series through 1 Samuel well over a year ago. Even if you have forgotten that, you will no doubt remember that there was a covenant that was made between Jonathan and David. Jonathan, Saul's son, and David, the man who Saul was in the midst of pursuing. These two, Jonathan and David, they were best friends. And it made Saul's homicidal anger toward David all the more tragic. And so back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, we read, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, when David asked Jonathan to help him escape from Saul, Jonathan tells David in verse 14, If I am still alive, show me steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You see, Jonathan had seen the writing on the wall, as it were. He knew that he, though he was Saul's son, was not destined to become the king, the next king of Israel. He knew, and he accepted, and he agreed with the fact that David was going to become king. And so he was asking David, when David came into his kingship, should the house of Saul be cut off, that David would not cut off Jonathan's family. And so Jonathan's request for David was to show him the steadfast love, or hesed, of Yahweh. And that request that Jonathan made of David back in 1 Samuel, it finds its fulfillment in our passage this morning. 
as David shows his promised steadfast love, this hesed, to Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. Now there is a reversal that has taken place here as compared with 1 Samuel 20. In that chapter, David was absent from Saul's table. He was running from Saul because he feared that Saul would kill him. Saul summoned David to come to his table, but being warned by Jonathan that Saul was going to try to kill him, David fled. And in our passage, David asks if there are any remaining members of Saul's house and and is told about Mephibosheth. And David summons him and welcomes him to his table. David proves that he has not forgotten the covenant that he made with Jonathan, Saul's son. As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would ask you to consider this. If David showed steadfast love, hesed, to Jonathan's son because of a promise he made, how much more will God show steadfast love or hesed to his covenant people? If David showed steadfast love to Jonathan's son because of a promise he made, how much more will God show steadfast love to his covenant people? The sermon today is divided into three sections. The first section, remembering the covenant. The second, a royal invitation. The third, an unexpected inheritance. Again, remembering the covenant, that's the first section of the sermon. A royal invitation is the second. And the third is an unexpected inheritance. So let's turn to the first section of the sermon, remembering the covenant. And we saw previously, a few weeks ago, that life had begun to quiet down for David. And it's a little difficult to understand the exact chronology of chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, exactly where they fall with one another, because we'll see in later chapters, 10, 11, 12, that David is back at war. And so it may be, perhaps, that the events of those later chapters actually took place prior to what we're talking about this morning. But as of now, as of this point in David's life, he's living in his own house in Jerusalem, and he's been thrilled by the promise that God made to him about establishing his house forever. And in this relative peace, he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Or at least if he didn't just remember it at this point in his life, he realizes that he actually has the time and the opportunity to do something about the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And he asks in verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And that word that's translated kindness, at least in the ESV, is somewhat uh, deceptive because that's the same word that Jonathan and David used back in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19 and again in chapter 23, which is speaking of God's steadfast love or covenant faithfulness, hesed. And as Davis points out in his commentary, roughly 15 to 20 years have passed since David made this covenant with Jonathan. A long time. Plenty of opportunities for David to, quote-unquote, forget. Or perhaps for descendants of David, if they were aware of such a covenant, to believe that the covenant had been abandoned. Now 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, tells us that Mephibosheth was five years old when his father Jonathan died. And at that point, when the news reached uh, Jonathan's nurse, he became crippled when Jonathan's nurse rose up and decided to flee, knowing or thinking at least, and, and 
believing probably accurately that, that Mephibosheth's life might be in danger, she jumped up, and when she did so, she dropped the five-year-old boy and broke both of his ankles and rendered him crippled. And now some 15 years have gone by. And Mephibosheth is a grown man, and he has a young son of his own named Micah. And Mephibosheth, along with his son and presumably his wife, they have carved out some kind of existence under the patronage of Machir, in whose house he lives in Lodabar. But at this point, David knows none of this information. He has had no, uh, no knowledge of the existence of this son of his best friend, Jonathan. And he simply puts out the call, asking if there's anyone left in the house of Saul. It's interesting. And again, we think about the events of 2 Samuel chapter 6. There is a a remaining member of the house of Saul, his own wife, Michal. But she gets no mention here. He puts out the call and he finds out in verse 2 that there is a former servant of Saul named Ziba. And they called him to King David. And in verse 3, David asks Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the chesed of God to him? And Ziba responded to David in verse 3, telling him that there is a son of Jonathan, one crippled in his feet, who is left of Saul's house. And in verse 4, David asks where he is. And Ziba tells him that Jonathan's son lives in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And the location of Lodabar in our day is unknown. It's not known where he was. And verse 5 tells us that David sent and he brought Jonathan's son from Lodabar to Jerusalem. And you may remember from our time in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and chapter 20 and even David's covenant renewal with Jonathan in chapter 23 verse 18 and David's promise to Saul in chapter 24 verses 21 to 22 that it was expected that if David became king, he would eradicate the house of Saul. That was, that was the usual, usual course of events in the ancient Near East at that time. A new ruler came into power, and if he was adversarial to the previous ruler, everyone in that previous ruler's household would be eradicated. But this kind of thing still happens today. How many of you remember during, I guess it was the second Gulf War, when Saddam Hussein was toppled, when he was run out of power before perhaps he was captured in the desert? Does anybody remember that the Ba'ath Party ruled in uh, Iraq? Do you remember the phrase, the, the, the de-bathification? I think Don, Donald Rumsfeld invented that or coined that phrase. And what it meant was that they were going to eradicate all of the vestigial remains of the bath party from Iraq. It's uncertain even today whether that has fully taken place. But it still happens. And even in peaceful transfers of power... There are often, between the outgoing administration and the incoming administration, there are little power struggles, little squabbles that take place behind the scenes. But it was expected by everyone that David would do the same thing, that he would wipe out all of the remaining members of Saul's household. Though the Philistines had done a pretty good job of taking care of that. But instead, David wanted to find out if anyone of Saul's house remained so that he could, rather than eradicate them, show steadfast love to them so that he could keep the covenant that he made with Jonathan, his friend. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, a royal invitation. 
In verse 5, which we've already mentioned, David sends men to Lodabar to bring Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. Now imagine for a moment that you're Mephibosheth. Imagine that you could even say his name properly, much less be him. Put yourself in his shoes. And some strange men from the new regime, or new to you, he's been around for a while, they come a-looking. They're coming in search for you. You are the last living heir, and your son, you're the last living heirs of Saul, with, of course, the exception of Michal. We don't know anything about her at this point. And these men from King David show up at your door, and they request, and really, they require your presence with the king in Jerusalem. Now, it would be natural for you to assume, and in most cases you would be correct, that your life is over. Mephibosheth was very young when his grandfather Saul was killed, when his father was killed. And perhaps he heard stories about Saul's pursuit of David. Perhaps he had heard the other side of the story, that David was a bad man, that Saul had good reason to pursue him and try to kill him. It's hard to tell what Mephibosheth had heard all of those years ago. And it might even be the case that, that he'd been told that David hated Saul. He might not have known, or if he did know, he might not remember his father's and David's friendship. But at any rate, he was a disabled man scraping out an existence under the patronage of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar, and now he has to go meet with the king. And his fate is uncertain at best. Mephibosheth was brought to Jerusalem, and in verse 6 we read that he came to David and he fell on his face and he paid homage. Now notice something about the difference between uh, Mephibosheth's initial meeting with David and what the servant of Saul, Ziba, did. There's no mention of Ziba falling on his face. There's no mention of, of Ziba paying homage or doing obeisance to David when he was summoned before the king. But the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, the former king, does this. And David called out to him, Mephibosheth. I think the ESV renders this well with that exclamation point, which would not have been there in the original. He's glad to see this son of Jonathan he never knew existed. And think about that for a moment. Think about the close friends who you have, who when they have children, they're they're in some ways kind of like your own children. You love them like you love your friend. And to this excited greeting, Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, and these are important words for David to say because David is putting himself in the shoes of this man. He says to him, do not fear. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness. I will show you hesed. I will show you covenant faithfulness and love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And verse 8 says, And he paid homage. Literally, he bowed again. And Mephibosheth said, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? Now the king's table, it was reserved for those who were closest to him. His family members, his close advisors. And Mephibosheth likely would have been happy with just the crumbs from the king's table. 
Mephibosheth, like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, he did not have a high view of himself. He likened himself to a dog and a dead dog at that. He didn't see himself as deserving of a place at the high king's table. And there's almost a prodigal son-like quality to this story. David is the happy father who welcomes his long-lost son and holds a feast for him, dressing him in his best robe and putting a ring on his finger, all to celebrate his return. Now, this passage is not so over the top as the parable that Jesus told to the Pharisees and the scribes in Luke chapter 15, but Mephibosheth very well may have felt the way that that son in the parable felt. And that brings us to the third and the final section of the sermon today, an unexpected inheritance. In addition to being told that he will eat at David's table always for the rest of his days, Mephibosheth is also told that all of the land of Saul will be restored to him. Now, Saul, of course, was from the tribe of Benjamin. It's just to the south of Jerusalem. And... David is telling Mephibosheth, all of Saul's lands are being handed over to you. This would have been welcome news to Mephibosheth because the restoration of Saul's land meant a source of income for him. But Mephibosheth is disabled. He's crippled. He certainly can't work the land. He was only kept alive due to the patronage of of Machir. But this might not have been welcome news to Ziba, Saul's servant. It's quite possible, it's quite likely that Ziba had been the one managing Saul's lands and enjoying the income it produced. With his 15 sons and his 20 20 servants, it's evident that Ziba had amassed great wealth for himself. Poor people might have a lot of children, but not servants, and certainly not more servants than sons. And if that is the case, Mephibosheth's unexpected inheritance marked a reversal of fortune for Ziba. And this sets the stage for what happens later in 2 Samuel chapters 16 and 19. It helps us to understand what takes place later on in those two chapters. Well, verses 9 and 10, David tells Ziba, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson, grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, grandson, shall always eat at my table. And Ziba responds to David in verse 11 and possibly through clenched teeth saying, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. Now notice here that there is no indication of Ziba bowing, much less Ziba falling on his face before the king And this is evidence of the fact that he holds himself in higher regard than does Mephibosheth. Ziba, Ziba, Saul's former servant, has just become Mephibosheth's and by extension David's servant. And yet he shows no sign of this other than referring to himself when he speaks to King David as your servant. And verse 11 concludes, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 12 gives us some information that we didn't know about Mephibosheth. He had a young son himself, Micah. And it says that all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Imagine this. Mephibosheth, if he had been able 
would have been a servant to his patron. And yet now he has dozens of servants, people to take care of him. And verse 13 closes out the chapter saying, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. David's steadfast love for Jonathan resulted in him giving Mephibosheth, the grandson of the, of the man who relentlessly pursued David and tried to kill him, resulted in him giving this man a seat at his table. David was committed to keeping the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Now, as we already know, and as we're going to see even more clearly in the coming weeks, David was far from perfect. But even he would not break the covenant that he had made. He easily could have claimed ignorance. He could have claimed to have forgotten this covenant. So many years had passed since he made it. He might have overlooked it for political reasons, recognizing that bringing someone in, sitting at his table from the household of Saul, could have put him in some sort of danger. And as we'll see, keeping this covenant that he made with Jonathan is going to cause David problems, political problems in the future. But David was faithful. He kept the promise. He did not break his covenant. How much more faithful then will God be to the covenant that he has made with his people? God never forgets. He cannot lie. He does not change. When we are unfaithful to the covenant, he remains faithful. Now, we ought to be remain committed to the covenants that we have made, but we don't always do so. We ought to. We ought to strive to do this. And so it's good to review the various covenants, the various commitments, the various promises that you have made in this life and to assess how well you are honoring those, how well you're keeping them. But whether or not we do, God will always remain committed to his promises. Now, sometimes we don't like the fact that God doesn't change. When there's a particular sin that we are particularly fond of, and God's word tells us that that sin is sin, we want to believe that God can change when it's convenient for us, so that the sin that he declared to be a sin 2,000 years ago plus is now not so sinful in his eyes. So when something is inconvenient for us, we sort of hope that God will change, that he'll modify his law, that he'll do something different. But when it comes to his covenant, we hope that he never changes. We take a lot of comfort in the fact that he doesn't change. Why? Because if he does, if he's whimsical, if he's capricious, if he shifts his mind from one thing to the next, then who is to say that he'll keep the covenant, that he'll keep the promises that he's made? And so we rely on the fact, when we think of God's promises, when we think of his covenant, we rely on the fact that he does not change. And how do we know that he doesn't change? How can we trust that he will keep the covenant that he's made? Well, he sent his only begotten son to die on the accursed cross in order to keep the covenant that he made with you and me. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an indisputable fact of history. Jesus Christ came. 
The eternal Son of God took up flesh. He added to His divine nature a human nature. He lived on this earth for a specific period of years. He ministered among His people and among the disciples, among those who hated Him. He ministered for them, to them and among them. And the thanks that He got was being nailed to a tree. This is the proof, brothers and sisters, that God keeps His covenant. Because keeping His covenant came at great cost to Him. It meant that the eternal Son of God had to die. And die He did. And He did so in order for you and me to have a seat at His table for eternity. He died so that you and I, so that our heads could be anointed, so that we could come to that table, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, welcomed, not as servants, not as those who stand behind the chairs of the sons of the king to serve those sons. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you and I, so that we might be the sons and daughters of the Most High King and sit at His table as His children. Not as dogs who sit under the table hoping simply for crumbs to fall. When you gather around your tables this week to give thanks for what the Lord has done, to, to contemplate the ways in which God has blessed this country, has blessed your family. Reflect for just a few moments. I would ask you to do this. This is your homework assignment. You can come back and report to me next week how it, how it goes. Reflect for just a few moments about how this is, is a picture, a, a small picture, a, an imperfect picture, a, a really bad picture mimeograph or, or copy or facsimile of what the marriage supper of the Lamb will be. I hope for you that you enjoy great abundance this Thanksgiving and that you push back from the tables at which you will sit this week with full bellies so that you've got to adjust your belts because you have feasted so well. But I hope that you will recognize the fact that that is just a foreshadowing and a poor one at that of the feast of the supper that you will enjoy with your Savior for all eternity. Because, brothers and sisters, just as King David invited, and not only invited, but, but demanded and, and welcomed Mephibosheth to his table always, even better, you are being welcomed to the table of the High King. You will enjoy Him forever. You've been given a seat at His table. And this isn't because of anything that you have done. It's not because you deserve it. And quite, in fact, quite the contrary. Despite your best, or I should say worst efforts, you've been invited and given a seat at his table. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.
Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are thankful for this beautiful picture of that great feast, that great supper that we will enjoy with you forever. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We are thankful that King David desired to keep the covenant that he made with his friend Jonathan. But we are grateful, dear Lord, that while we were still enemies of yours, you sent your Son, Christ Jesus, to die for us in order that we might be called the sons and daughters of the Most High King. We are thankful that no longer do we raise our fists in defiance and anger at you. We're thankful that you welcome us to your table. You've prepared it for us. You have have weighed it down with a great feast. You've anointed our heads with oil. We are grateful, dear Lord, that even as Christ Jesus has been exalted at your right hand, so you will exalt us. You will raise us up into your presence. But we pray that you would teach us to be thankful, not just this week. But we pray that this would be simply training, that each and every day we would have gratitude in our hearts for your mercies, your kindnesses, your goodness to us. We are grateful for all that you have done, especially for the sending of your Son, Christ Jesus to die in our place on the cross. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.